Good morning. Grab your Bibles and flip to the book of Zephaniah. Uh, the book of Zephaniah. I recently bought a book called The Skeleton in God's Closet. And, and every time we have people at our house since I bought the book... They'll end up finding this book on our coffee table, and without fail, they would pick it up and, and go, hmm, interesting. And I think it's because we all kind of wonder, are there skeletons in God's closet? Whether we're Christian or not, that thought has come, uh, can be a little triggering. Does God have skeletons in his closet? Of course he doesn't, but, but we sometimes feel like he does. We feel like this when it comes to topics of judgment and hell. We're afraid to talk about it because we're afraid that it will offend someone. So we just leave those topics alone. We Christians can be the ones who, who kind of shove them away. I don't want to talk about that. But God is going to have Zephaniah get in there and pull those skeletons out. Zephaniah is not afraid to jump into, the t into topics like judgment and the wrath of God. He's just going to say it like it is. But I think there are two things he would want us to check in ourselves before we jump in. First, as we read this, as we study this, this book, who do we think who do we think is the authority? Is it God or is it us? Who is being put on the witness stand? Is it God or is it us? Our answer to this question is going to determine how we feel about this book. Second, Zephaniah is going to want us to check as we read this, are we playing the judge or is God? Are we looking around at others and assuming conviction on them or are we letting God do the convicting? If we put ourselves in the judge's chair, we're going to miss what God might be saying to all of us in here. And we're going to drive away people who are just like us in a desperate need of God's mercy. And we need to remember that God is the only one in the judge's chair. Okay, let's dive in. Let's, let's look. What, who, who is Zephaniah and what is this book about? So Zephaniah 1.1 1, 1 tells us, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedali, son of Amari, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah's father and grandfather, great-grandfather, and even great-great-grandfather made the list into the introduction. And this is unique for a prophet to list almost a genealogy about where he's coming from. But we can assume why right away. Hezekiah was a great king. So it makes sense why Zephaniah would trace his heritage back to Hezekiah. There's a joke, there's a joke in my family that we are descendants from the Russian princess Anastasia. I don't think we actually are, but my mom's ancestors were exiled to Kazakhstan during the Bolshevik Revolution for some unknown reason. Even though we don't have any proof that we were related to her, I still somehow wanted to be connected to her. I wanted to say, yeah, we're related. I'm kind of related to Anastasia. Well, Zephaniah is actually related to King Hezekiah. And it makes sense why he's mentioning him here, because there's credibility. He's not just a prophet, he's a prophet that is related to a king who is considered a great king. So these 
poetic writings are coming during the reign of Josiah. So let's understand, let's get a, let's get a better historical context. So there was a King Hezekiah, who was a pretty good king, as is just said. Um, after him, Manasseh was the king. He's considered to be one of the worst kings that ever existed in Judah. If you remember, uh, we've been studying for the past few weeks the state of Israel. Now we're moving to the state Judah. And so the king during, uh, so the king was Hezekiah and then Manasseh. And so Manasseh came, came to power at a young age because Hezekiah got ill and died. Manasseh was a pretty awful king. He introduced idol worship into the temple. He crossed many lines of injustice and even introduced child sacrifice. Yes, you heard that right. He introduced child sacrifice. So after Manasseh, uh, we have a king, Ammon, who, who died pretty quickly. And then we have the king, Josiah. Uh, he's another good king. During Josiah's reign, they were, they were renovating the temple, and in the renovations, one of the priests found the book of the law. And in 2 Kings 22.19, we read the way Josiah reacts to his first reading of God's word. He humbled himself before the Lord and rent his clothes and wept. So Josiah is hearing the actual scripture read for the first time, and this is his, his reaction. Why? Uh, the word of God revealed to King Josiah that he doesn't measure up. The way he was living and leading was off base, and, and that's the beauty of the law. That's the beauty of the word that it always reveals to us the gap that exists between what God expects of us and the way we are actually living. And Josiah wept. He changed and he brought many changes during his reign. He got rid of, of all the idols in the temple. He got rid of idolatrous priests. He got rid of the house of male cult prostitutes. He got rid of the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. And he reinstated the Passover that's been ignored since the days of the judges. So during this time, Zephaniah is writing this book. Most likely right before any major change took place. Most likely as maybe some of the, the changes were right on the verge of happening. And we can assume that the prophet and the king worked together to show people who God is and draw people back to God. So what did Zephaniah bring to the people? What, what message? He draws, he starts off this book by drawing this image of creation for the people, but in a reverse order. Instead of going from chaos to order, he moves backwards from order to chaos. In Genesis 1, we meet a good God who takes disorder, chaos, and darkness and orders it. He brings beauty out of nothing. He brings goodness and perfection. He pulls forces together so, so that life can thrive. At the climax of Genesis 1, God makes men in his own image, male and female, and they live in this perfect garden. They live under God's rule and in his company. God walked with them. They live within the boundaries of what God defined as good and evil, and they flourished. But in chapter 3, we see that they doubted God's goodness and doubted God's character, and that led to disobedience. 
That's the moment sin entered the world. And so now in Zephaniah, he brilliantly takes the image of God ordering things in Genesis 1, and he reverses it. This order, ordered world is moving backwards towards chaos and darkness. And in verse 2, we read, we see this. Uh, Zephaniah says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubbles of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So, so instead of moving towards a beautiful garden of perfection and living under the rule of a good God who defines what is good and evil, Zephaniah is showing us the opposite. He's revealing that any time we rebel against God, we are moving in the opposite direction of beauty and flourishing and back towards chaos. And the seams that start coming apart, uh, to, to make it more plain, sin is rooted in our distrust in God's character, in our distrust in God's goodness for us, and that distrust leads us to rebel against Him. And when that happens, we define what is good and evil for ourselves. And Zephaniah says it's like we're trying to scrub out the original created order that produced beauty and life in abundance. Zephaniah, in a way, is saying that people have been defining good and evil for themselves to satisfy themselves and are actually moving towards chaos and not order. And this movement will have consequences. In other words, when we sin, sin always has consequences. Sin will cost something. And Zephaniah is saying that this, this disorder, this movement towards chaos, will bring God's judgment. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he describes the way Jerusalem is moving towards chaos. He's de describing how all the institutions are about to end. All the worship of false gods will end. All the leaders who have been basking in the injustice will end. All the places that brought that injustice will end. You see, what is happening is similar to what we have been studying for the past few weeks. The northern state, Israel, have rebelled against God with idolatry and an injustice and didn't live in light of the covenant that God made with His people. Everything that we learned took place in Israel to some degree was also happening in Judah as well. The rich taking advantage of the poor and justice ruling the day. Dishonesty and borrowing and lending, false worship of idols, child sacrifice. All of this was happening in Judah. And Judah is living for themselves and they're defining what is good and evil and they're moving towards chaos. And Zephaniah is saying, all of this will end. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord here means, means that judgment for their sins is coming. Same way that the judgment came to their neighbor Israel, the same kind of judgment will come to Judah unless they change, unless they repent. And we know that during Josiah's reign, they did change. But as soon as his reign was over, the nation went right back into its old ways. And so they do receive judgment from the, from the enemy. Babylon, in, in this case, not long after Josiah's reign, the Babylonians will invade the city and carry many away into exile. 
Babylon will eventually destroy the city, its walls, and this great temple that Solomon built. But Zephaniah never tells us that it will be Babylon because it is not important to him who will come and destroy them. For him, what is important is, is their sin and the fact that that sin has consequences. They rebelled against God and God will bring judgment. Zephaniah does not care if it's Assyria or Babylon or someone else. Judgment is coming. So he tells them in chapter 2, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. In other words, Zephaniah is saying, Come, gather, and repent. Come before God and confess your sins. Come before God and tell Him what you have done. What have you done wrong? He's saying, come and confess before the one who will judge. And the one who will judge may hide you. He may cover you on the day of the Lord. And then after this, he, he, he then, uh, Zephaniah widens this conversation to other nations. He, he's saying that judgment is coming not only, for, uh, not only to Jerusalem, but it's coming to the other nations as well. He takes a map and he hits every neighbor that Judah touches. And chapter 2 verse 10 describes the reason for, the, for this day of the Lord coming. They shall be their lot in return for their pride because they scoffed and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. So according to Zephaniah, the root cause of worldwide judgment is human pride. And St. Augustine famously said, pride is the consent, con, uh, commencement of all sin. Pride pushes us to live as our own rulers in our own kingdom. And at the same time, it screams that I don't need another king. And an, or, or, I don't need another kingdom or another king. I got it. In my own kingdom, I got it. I, in my own kingdom, I determine the rules. I don't need help. Nothing is wrong with me. I do whatever I want, whatever makes me feel better. And we know that Judah is being wicked. We, we, know that, uh, we know from the previous weeks that the wickedness of Israel. We know about the injustice, about the rich taking advantage of the poor. And we know about the idol worship. And we know that these practices have come from their neighbors. So it isn't hard to imagine the practices of these neighboring nations. And like Israel and Judah, they have been writing their own rules They've been determining their own morality. They've been living inside of their own kingdom. And this kingdom is messed up. And that's what pride does. That's what pride leads us to live inside our own kingdom that determines the rules. And doesn't look to God and as God being the king. And we also know at the same time, in light of this conversation, we also know from the story of Jonah... That God is patient and kind and slow to anger. We know that God is abounding in mercy and compassion. 
And we have seen his patience at play with Assyria. We have seen his patience at play with Israel and Judah. We have seen his patience with other nations. And there's a moment, if the people don't change, the consequences follow. And Zephaniah says in chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decisions is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So judgment will eventually come. Judgment will eventually come upon Judah. Judgment will eventually come to other nations. Judgment will eventually come to Jerusalem. And judgment will eventually come to us. The day of the Lord will eventually come. So what judgment are we talking about? Is this just a slap on our hand or something more serious? Are we talking about the final judgment where Jesus will judge the living and the dead? Well, let's start with Zephaniah and move out. Zephaniah uses the term, the day of the Lord, to talk about the events that will occur in their day as well as a distant future. In other other words, for Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is both near and far. We know that Assyrians took over Israel. We know that Babylon eventually conquers Judah. These events are absolutely what Zephaniah means when he talks about the judgment that comes from God upon these nations. But in Zephaniah and other minor prophets, we have seen that the day of the Lord also refers to a time when God will gather his people, when Jerusalem will be rebuilt and God will live with his people forever. And that is talking about events that will happen when Jesus returns for the second time. And what the church refers to as the second coming. And on that day, Jesus will be the judge who will pass the verdict. In Acts 17, 31, Luke, who wrote this, says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance of all by raising him from the dead. So, so Jesus is the judge who will bring the final judgment on all people. And what's beautiful in scripture is that for those who put their hope and trust in Jesus, for those who say, I no longer want to live in my own kingdom, but I want to live in God's kingdom. I no longer, I no longer want to make, make the rules of what is good and bad, but I want to trust God who decides what is good and bad for me. For those who who don't live in that kingdom but move to God's kingdom, God says in Romans 5, 8 and 9, But God showed His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. What this means is that for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus already took our judgment. When he died on the cross, he stood between us and justified wrath of God on us. God's wrath was directed onto him instead of onto us. And he gave us his righteousness. That's why Romans 8.1 says this about us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, those who don't live in their own kingdom, but, but, but get plucked out of their own kingdom by God and put placed in His kingdom, 
That's the reality. But for those who won't put their trust in Jesus, Matthew 25 tells us this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then verse 41, Then He will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus will be the judge for those who put their hope and trust in Jesus. He is our judge who took our guilt, guilty sentence on himself for others, for those who have chosen their own kingdom instead of following Jesus as their king. There will be a moment that they will face Jesus and he will give them a verdict. And I know... I know this is not a fun conversation. I know that talking about judgment is hard. It's hard because all of us have loved ones that this affects. This affects us in many ways. The reality of judgment and hell brings many doubts into our minds, or it could bring many doubts to our minds. And maybe even question upon question about how can, can a loving God judge sinners? Or what kind of a loving God is filled with wrath? Or, or how is God going to judge with burning anger? Maybe you're thinking, come on, Zephaniah. You must be wrong. My God is God of love. There's no way this God could be a God of wrath and anger. And the thing is, the reality is, any loving person is often filled with wrath. Let, let me kind of explain this through this. For God to, to be love, he has to answer and judge wickedness. And Becky Pepper says this in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. She says this, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. And then she goes on to say, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the inside of the human race he loves with his whole being. See, love and wrath are connected. Judgment without love is impossible, and God will deal with sin. If He doesn't, then He is indifferent, and that's not love. For the cross to make sense, for our sins to be forgiven, for love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. There must be a judge who can call to account the violence and oppression, who can provide hope for those who are in slavery, who can provide hope for the rape victim, who can provide hope to a child who has been abused or bullied. We need a God of love and justice. We need a God who will protect and who will deal with evil. We need a God who gives hope to the oppressed and, and, and hope that the oppressors can change. 
God can save anyone. And he does all of this on the cross. On the cross, not only does he judge the wickedness, but he changes the hearts of the wicked. Jesus dies and deals with the evil. That evil is poured on him. The wrath that Zephaniah is talking about had to go somewhere. And Jesus took it onto himself on the cross. Jesus deals with the problem of evil by loving us and dying on our behalf. And in return, he gives us his righteousness. He forgives our sins. Instead of wrath, the Holy Spirit is poured onto us. And, 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 and now we can call God Abba, Father. See, Zephaniah doesn't end with wrath, but he talks about the restoration. He talks about what it will be like to be with Jesus after he judges the living and dead. In this book, he doesn't end with the destruction of their city and their walls and, and their temple. He goes farther into the future where there is hope of restoration. He talks about a time after the exile, a time where Jesus, the Messiah, will come and restore all things. He doesn't spell out the details for us, but he says this in Zephaniah 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, For, for at that time I would change the speech of, of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him in one accord, from beyond the river of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So the book started with the imagery of creation in reverse, showing how the people moved from order towards chaos, from beauty towards destruction. And these words at the end of the book offer hope through another kind of reversal. Genesis 11 marks the moment when people in darkness and chaos wanted to build a Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a symbol of pride at its most extreme. It was this object that, that would declare, we are the same as God. He is no higher than us. So God divided the people into different language groups and, and the building stopped. Now, Zephaniah is painting a picture of God bringing order once again out of the disorder. And it's this picture of God changing people from isolated islands of pride to people who are together, who are a family, who are speaking the same language, and their language is worship. That order is restored through His Son, Jesus. The order is restored through His Son who fully obeys and lives in perfection. That order is restored through His Son as He dies on the cross on our behalf. And the image that Zephaniah is putting in front of us is saying people will be united again in one language. God's people will again call upon the name of the Lord. We will once again trust God's definition of good and evil. We will once again live with Him. We'll walk with Him as our Lord. As if I goes on to describe this glorious day, when Jerusalem is restored, and this is the final day when Jesus returns and joy rules the day, and He says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with the loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for a festival uh, so that you will no longer suffer reapproach. Behold, at that time I'll deal with all the oppressors. I'll save the lame and gather the outcast. I'll change their shame into praise and renounce it all the earth. At that time I'll bring you in and at that and that at that time when I gather you together, I'll make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortune before your eyes, says the Lord. You see, the hope of this kind of future rests in Messiah who is taking our judgment who has washed us clean and made us new, who has found us lost and wandering and brought us close. He loved us while we were sinners and He will never stop loving us. And because of Him, we can be, joy we can be joyful now and sing now. We can have hope that one day God will live with us and walk with us like He did in the garden. So may we trust this Messiah whose judgment on us is love. When we fall at, at, at the feet of the cross and confess our sins and our brokenness, may, may we trust this kind of Messiah. Let me pray for us.